I'd like to thank our top sponsors, Jared Fountain, Marco Campos, Anersberger Christensen, Fergus Ryan, as well as those who have remained anonymous for making this show possible. And welcome to the 22nd episode of The Cave of Apollos. They say Ibsen's plays must be modernized to make them relevant today. The result is stereotypical characters and artificial scenography at the cost of drama. Employing methods Ibsen left 170 years ago, his play A Doll's House is reduced to feminist propaganda, clouding both its mythological context and the playwright's unveilings of human nature. With me tonight is a stage director to discuss the importance of what Ibsen actually wrote. Adarium, welcome to the Cave of Apollos. Thank you very much. I should say right from the beginning that we are quite lucky today to have this crucifixion painted by Sebastian Salvo on the wall, especially for <laughs> our conversation. And uh, <clears throat> I don't think I'm giving away too much when I say that when it comes to Ibsen, a lot of people are confused with this about this idea of his contemporary dramas. So yes. I think this is a nice illustration that Ibsen is working with a great and grand mythological basis for his so-called contemporary plays. So we'll get into that and I'll let you, as we go along, explain <laughs> why these uh, photographs are, uh, are on the shelf. Um, but should we just start with what, what is most immediate? You are the co-director of The Last Days of Immanuel Kant, written by Ad Nördrum. And uh, you want to talk a little bit about that first? Yes, sure. So Not too much though, because we're having After Nördrum <laughs> to talk about that. <laughs> yes, so after we'll come and talk uh, about the play in depth. Mm. Uh, but we just had our last performance a few weeks ago, and it was altogether a success. I would say. Uh, I came into this uh, process quite late. It was during the corona time right. when there was a lot of this restrictions and they were not allowed to rehearse. And I got to know after Nerdrum and then she asked me if I wanted to be a co-director. Right. And even though I had put theatre on the shelf, uh, I decided to say yes to this project because mm. I knew uh, that this was a person and this was a um, group of people that I really wanted to work together with because mm -hmm. we had the same values and the same visions for what right. theatre should be. Right, and uh, Christopher Hivy was also involved yes, in, that's uh, right. in the, the production at least. Yeah. yeah. Right, but you said the magic word here. Yeah. Theatre on the shelf. What is your background then as uh, someone who's working with theatre? Well, uh, at the moment, I'm actually finishing my last uh, year at the law degree. Mm -hmm. um, but for many years, I was doing theatre uh, directing. Uh, but I left the theatre a couple of times due to that I couldn't live with the expectations of the expectations today, uh, which is very much that you all the time, if you want to stage, for instance, Ibsen, you have to come up with a concept you have to have some, you have to add something to the play to make it uh, contemporary, to make it actual. To bring in something external, yes. basically. Yeah. Uh, for instance, I was staging uh, Pillars of Society, which is a not so very 
known play of Ibsen. And then people who hadn't even read the play and knew nothing about it uh, would ask me what I would do with it to make it, right. uh, <laughs> make it relevant. And that sort of just points straight well, to the problem. I mean, th that's, <laughs> I, I think I mentioned that in, in an earlier conversation. You know, uh, there's so many similarities if it's theater or painting or whatever. I mean, I've encountered people who barely know how to spell philosophy asking me if I should not become more modern and, and distance myself from Nurem and all these cliches. That yes. Okay, so, uh, but you were educa educating yourself as a stage director or you were just studying? I, was, how I was studying theater and sort of what you call uh, in Norwegian theaterviter. It's a theater expert. Yeah, right, right. Uh, and I was doing theater, like practical theater on the side. Okay, yeah. And then you gave it up for... Uh, I gave it up twice, actually. <laughs> I had to come back. Uh, I'm a slow learner in that sense. Uh, <laughs> but uh, in the end, I just uh, figured out that I should use my ambition to do something more fruitful. Okay. <laughs> but... Um, so, so that's why I, I said yes when after asked me, because I knew that this, um, these people they they want the same. Right. They want to make a drama which is about something you can relate to, right. about human and the destiny. And um, yeah, because I, I think there's the same problem also in architecture. Like you have these architects who want to be artists to express themselves, to create something instead of making something that works. Yes. Right. So okay, and I think we'll do a good job with uh, unveiling. Ibsen's unveilings <laughs> when, it com when it comes to that. But uh, tell me a little bit about how you got interested in Ibsen in the first place, because I think that started before you studied theatre, right? Yes, Ibsen it was kind of the reason why I studied theatre in the first place. Um, it goes way back uh, till I was um, a child. And uh, sometimes my father would recite this poem of Ibsen called Tarje Wigen. Oh. Uh, it's a beautiful poem about a husband who uh, rose over uh, to Denmark during the famine mm. uh, in 1909 to save his family, to bring back food. Yeah. And 18, on the way back, yeah. mm -hmm. he gets caught. So mm. it's a very... Uh, um, it's very sentimental. It's very sentimental yeah. and it's a... Um, yeah, it's such a touching story. So sometimes my father would recite this poem and we, of course, knew what was coming. So yeah. me and my sisters and my mom, we were crying all the way from the <laughs> beginning. <laughs> but what happened uh, was that uh, when my father got to this one verse uh, in the poem, he was starting to cry himself. Yeah. Every time at that one specific place. <laughs> and he's a strong um, man who cries, never cries. Right. So I was just thinking like, what is it about this Henrik Ibsen that can do something like this <laughs> to my father? I have to figure it out. So I remember I was thinking, yeah, when I get a grown up, I, I will get to know this. I will figure out what Ibsen is about. Right. So that was the driving force. Right. Desire is a good driving force. But, um, but I have to say yeah. that even though I, uh, at one point in my life, I was like studying theater at the university. Uh, or Ibsen, actually, I had a master's degree in Ibsen. 
And I was working at the Ibsen Museum. I was working at the National Theatre at the Ibsen Festival. And I was staging an Ibsen play. But it was not until I found this little book, <laughs> yeah. um, Nora, You Are Lying, that I actually understood what Ibsen is all about. And this is, dare <clears throat> uh, we say, future hope for this book? Not confirmed with the authors yet for an English publish publication? Yeah, we really Or do hope we need so. to edit that out? <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, it's out there. Unfortunately, this book is only Norwegian, but... I mean, when I, when I read this book, I feel like a complete idiot because it's like, as I told you, you're coming into an elevator and you're wondering how do you get to the second floor and someone tells you, well, you push the button with <laughs> number two on it. Like, that's how I feel having read The Doll's House, loving it and being all sentimental about these fates that we'll get into. And then they come uh, and just totally demolish the whole thing. But that's for that's later. For later. Mm -hmm. uh, let's get to what we have here. I mean, obviously we have Mr. Ibsen himself in the middle here. But um, there's one thing I was thinking we should spend some time on, and mm -hmm. that is performance practice, cultural history. Yes. You want to say something about the fact that Ibsen worked as a scenographer in his 20s, what tradition he came out of, how, how things changed with the performance practices? Because it's really, really relevant to the whole point also with the Doll's House. Yes. So it's very often forgotten that Ibsen actually worked in the theatres for a long time himself. He worked just as a scenographer, but also as a director, hmm. uh, working also with the choreography um, in the place. Uh, and I think that's from this time that he learned how to make great theatre plays. Mm -hmm because he really got to know the craft from the inside out. He was doing everything in the theatre. He was even drawing costumes. And yes, I've seen those, those drawings, yeah. Uh, so during this time, he was mostly staging comedies, and farce, vaudevilles, like very, uh, what we would say, sort of like, not very high, <laughs> high art, no, almost no tragedies at the time. Entertainment. Yeah. Uh, this was what he was staging, about 300 performances uh, was he involved in. 300 separate, yes, not plays. just, uh, I mean, 300 separate plays. 300 different separate plays, yes. Wow. And that was mostly uh, like Scrib and uh, a bit of Holberg and a bit, yeah, all of right. this. And uh, yeah, please say a little bit about this uh, then, because this is how he worked with staging a, a play. Yeah, so we have to add here that Ibsen was also a painter and right. a drawer, an yeah. illustrator. Yeah. So he was a very, he had a very strong visual sense. Right. And he was preparing for the rehearsals by making very elaborate drawings of how the actors should move. Uh, all over the room. He was planning this in his uh, office beforehand. Because there are uh, like dots there, uh, with also with lines about w uh, showing where they should move, how they should exit enter and these things. Yes, he shows every every small detail the actor should do, <laughs> like how they should move in the room, how they should turn towards each other, how they should turn to the window, right. when they should sit down. Yeah. So this was very important for Ibsen. And then uh, I think it would be really quite effectful to contrast that with what was normal at the time. Yes. Uh, so 
it was both um, well the practice was that they were standing just uh, at the front of the stage uh, talking mostly straight to the audience right. and not to one another and they were not using the whole depth of the stage uh, this came from the the French uh, classicists period but it was also due to like technicalities that they didn't really have good lightning in the theater right. so if the audience should actually see what was happening they were forced to uh, to move the actors to the front stage mm -hmm. um, but still it sort of became a habit that was hard to change even though when the um, technical solutions got better they continued to this and Ibsen he was um, all the way from he was very young he was engaged in this that uh, yeah, because he was doing also dolls theater. Uh, yeah, as a, as a child, yeah, he did. Yeah, yeah. right. And because uh, th that's so. Um, I, I, there's another thing I to really recommend people, and you find this in English. This is Michael Meyer, Henrik Ibsen, a biography. Mm. Real to recommend. No romanticizing of Ibsen the genius or whatever. Just quite, uh, quite dry, but also really informative, mm. and uh, quite. Trustworthy, I think. It doesn't get into what uh, Nora you're lying that book uh, uh, describes, but um, for biographical uh, uh, information, it's good. And he talks about there because at one point Ibsen is sent on a study trip uh, to Copenhagen, amongst, amongst others, because they, ha they had the Royal Theatre there, which of course was another level. Yes. But still there, uh, I, I, he writes that they were not so concerned with the psychological realism of the figures. No. But just a declamatory way of acting, sort of art, very artificial way of acting. Yeah, yeah. the psychological realism didn't really become, uh, didn't come into the theatre before a bit later. Right, because it says method, what you call method acting. Yeah, that's it's based on Stanislavski, which yeah. is then a bit after Ibsen. So right. he was actually uh, quite right. ahead of himself. Yeah. What, he, what he does is that he picks, uh, he put together things that are already there, like for instance he was inspired by the Meiningen theatre, uh, that was a theatre troupe that started to use more realistic scenography right. and uh, he saw that and he took that and he took inspirations from many different places and then he melted it together. Right. So he actually didn't invent the wheel. <laughs> no, because it wasn't like he, I mean, this was starting to happen. Yeah, so many things were starting yeah. to happen during this. Because uh, there's time. one time where he, uh, they have a guest visit to uh, um, um, northern Norway. And it is noticed that, that the figures actually talk to, the, the actors actually are talking to each other. Yes. Not like you said, out on the, the tip of the stage talking to the audience, but they talk to each other and act as if, they act and react, right? Mm. And, and uh, it is noted that they, uh, how is it, uh, that they left, have left the, the old-fashioned, unnatural and artificial way of doing things. And that that was seen as a clear improvement. Yeah. Uh, because you also had a thing about, about uh, the scenery itself. What was the nature of scenery at that time? <laughs> uh, they were usually at the theatre where Ibsen worked, they were painting like the background uh, mm. on um, like a carpet. Mm. So they could paint like mountains and national romantic uh, motifs was in fashion at that time. And they would also even paint like a chair and a window 
on right. the curtain. So basically, instead of having actual tables on the stage. So basically, the, the scene was empty. The scene was empty. Yeah. yeah. It looked very full. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, so Ibsen. He apparently has a very strong will from his, he's quite young, that uh, he wants to change this. And he, uh, he uses the little inspiration that he, that he gets mm. and to sort of uh, elaborate on that. Mm -hmm. So I think, and I really want to stress that, I mean, you mentioned the mining in, mm. the Duke of Mining and his theater troupe, uh, who befriended uh, Ibsen when he started to really, really have a name. And I was just so, it was just so funny to read when there are, uh, like, they would have uh, uh, children with uh, beards on, and yeah. they would represent uh, men that were far away. Yes. Or they would have, uh, they would <laughs> have, <laughs> they would have horses on stage and all kinds of stuff uh, going on to have it re make it real realistic. And I remember there was one uh, star there who was sort of too full of herself. Um, so she didn't want to play uh, a side part, just a, like, like a little detail figure. And she was fired right away. Yeah. Because you should be able to play that little figure, that un unimportant figure, as realistic as possible, so that the totality was as, as real or realistic as possible. Right? Yeah, so Stanislavski was also inspired by the mining and theater, yeah. and that's probably where he got the phrase, like, it doesn't exist, uh, small roles or small characters, just small actors. Right. <laughs> Well, when you see that photograph of the Duke of Mining, and you see that that's a guy with a determined mind. <laughs> but still, the Mining and Troop was not that into psychological, realistic theatre. Right. It was more on the, um, yeah, on, on the scenery. In the scenery. Right. Th right. But speaking of then uh, the psychology, then mm. uh, the one thing that I really, uh, that really was. Um, little revelation for me when, when we were talking together. Um, we were talking, or you mentioned Ibsen's use of humor. Yeah. And now we're sort of starting to talk about him as a playwright and, and not just as a scenographer. Like what is the function of humor? Because I, I've always thought of humor, well that's like slapstick and stuff, mm. but, but how does Ibsen use humor? Uh, he uses, he gets inspired by his time in the theatre in two ways when it comes to humour. Uh, one thing is that there's all this hidden humour there, which is so ridiculous when you, <laughs> when you actually see it. I, we will probably mention some lines later. Yeah. The other thing is that we have to remember that Ibsen was mostly staging comedies right. and farce and those kind of plays. And if you have a closer look, his place is actually constructed very much as a farce. Mm. And of course, nobody wants to admit that because Ibsen is tragic and he's serious. But what he does is to use this frame, this uh, dramaturgy, and then he puts serious themes right. into it. Because so he uses the same technique like a scrib, who was a very well-known playwright at the time. He, um, we have this phrase, the well-made plate play comes from him, where he uh, had this book, a bit of like um, the book you were talking with Hivyu about. 
Oh, yeah, Save, save the Cat. Yeah, Save uh, the Cat. It <laughs> was the same kind of book, <laughs> but just from the, uh, by, by a script, that time. By Scrib himself. By Scrib. Oh, he didn't make a book, but it was like all these uh, rules that you had to follow. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. And he followed these rules. But Ibsen also followed these comedy rules, yeah. but it, they are just in disguise. Yeah. Like you have all these like, uh, misplaced letters and documents and this son, which you don't know who's the father of the son. And it's right. all this very basic forest. Ghosts technique. is a yeah. prime example. And, and the wild duck. Right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Because also in wild duck, that, that's, uh, there's a really good uh, recording uh, uh, in Norwegian, of course, <laughs> where you have that uh, scene from the, from the feast. Yeah. And these, these sort of, uh, there are more, not nobility, but finer people. And what they're saying to, to each other is just <laughs> completely idiotic. It's, uh, I mean, it's like, why did Ibsen write this? Because there's, there's nothing, <laughs> there's nothing deep in it at all. It's just completely superficial. No, he's very good in uh, tricking us to believe yeah. it's something. Yeah. What's the interesting thing is that it does, it tricks us to believe it's something deeper. Yeah. But in fact, in fact, it's far deeper than we think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I mean th that's the thing I, I th that strikes me with Ibsen. It's he's he's sort of a magician. Yes. And he tricks the audiences audience all the time, right? Because that's why I wanted to to, uh, uh, to also talk about this thing about humor, uh, because I didn't really understand it. Well, partly because of reading this, and partly because you you told me uh, that his use of humor, well, it has at least two functions as far as I can see. Uh, it makes the tragedy even stronger because yes. of the simultaneous contrast. Mm. If you only have the same thing, it doesn't have that much effect, right? Uh, but he also uses it to uh, ridicule. I mean, he has this very, very subtle irony, right? Where you think that the heroes are the heroes and in fact, they are just, they're just morals. Yes. <laughs> and I think that the, uh, enemy of the people yeah it's a quite good example of, of the that, enemy right? of the people is like definitely a comedy like it is a comedy right but, um, but okay is uh, the main character Stockman apparently a hero let's first do that we're sort of warming up now for Nora aren't we <laughs> well Dr. Stockman is a complete uh, ridiculous man no no stop <laughs> Give us Stockman the hero first. Okay, Stockman the hero. So um, the the thing is that I think people at the time actually saw the humor in uh, okay. An Enemy of the People. Uh -huh. But later when the play got translated, uh, it has been used uh, for political purposes. Right. Like A Doll's House and An Enemy of the People. It's really the two plays of Ibsen that has been most um, politicized. Is that mm. the word? Mm. Yeah. Um, because he's about this man who says that he is the strongest man in the world is the man who stands alone. Right, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and he's working against corruption and... Against uh, the powers! <laughs> yeah. And his, this play is, is used for all sort of uh, different um, fights like global warming and uh, whatnot. Stockman the Fist. Stockman the Fist. <laughs> um, but it's so it's so funny. But you have this the last the very last scene is where he says that that uh, the strongest man in the world is the man who stands alone. And then he's surrounded like this half circle circle of his whole family just standing there behind him, and he's just sacrificing him, his whole family for his own 
connections. Right, right. And that has a line also back to, for example, um, Bram, the priest who sacrifices everything yeah. to reach the, this pure ideal. Yes. And I think that's where I, what I uh, understood uh, um, while talking to you, reading that, this book, uh, how he m they seem to be heroes because they have this heroic manner. Yeah. And then they are just completely suffering from either hubris or stupidity, or maybe that's the same thing. And he makes you believe it's the hero, but it's a gro it's a really a strong criticism of that person, right, or that character. It is, hmm. yes. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and that also counts for his uh, heroines, right? Uh, very much. Mm -hmm. Like we have. Ibsen is mostly known for his female characters, like his female yeah. leading ladies, like Hedda and Nora. And uh, he uses the same technique there. It's really annoyingly politically correct. <laughs> <laughs> but we will, we will go into these ladies and <laughs> see what they yeah. hide. <laughs> because I, uh, and <clears throat> uh, I want to hear you talk about then, then the doll's house and what, what actually is the, the, the story going on there. But, but um, just want to add one last thing on this idea of humor, uh, because I've, like I said, I've always, always been skeptical of it because you know you want to have this drama, this uh, intensity. Like you don't want slapstick in that because I misunderstood the term, right? Mm. And uh, and uh, but then you have it as a simultaneous contrast. But then there's something that Joseph Campbell mentions, the mythologist, and this is my uh, recap. So I might be misunderstanding, but as far as, far as I I s can see. He is saying that you have, well, one thing is being romantic, but yet then you have tragedy, and that's a horrible situation. But then he said he talks about you ha how the myths are on a higher level still, because then the quote unquote humor comes in. That's where, why you have Buddha smiling, not because he thinks it's, oh, you, you stupid people are suffering, but he understands that, that this is life. Yes. And that sort of makes you smile. It's so strange. It sounds really strange to talk about it, but that, that's, uh, like, that's why you need, quote unquote, humor in something. So it's not just one sided, right? Yes. Because that wouldn't be reflective of life. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Let's get to Nora. Yes. <laughs> what's going on with that heroine? So, what's, ha what's going on in the, in the doll's house? What's going in a doll's house? So just to say first that uh, after Shakespeare, Ibsen is the second most played playwright in the world. Right. And uh, at the top of the list of Ibsen's plays is Adult's House. Right. So this is an extremely popular play. Uh, even when Ibsen died in 1906, it had been staged on all continents. Mm. And today it's still just staged. All I can just show you. The university here in Oslo has been working on a project to, uh, to map out all the Ibsen performances, all the stagings of Ibsen's plays all around the globe. And here you see a map of a doll's house and it's nearly 9,000 different productions that they have wow. found. Uh, so this has a, uh, this yeah. play has had a great impact uh, on theatre, but also on, uh, on societies and politics. Mm. And as I said before, it's uh, been used mainly as a political drama in um, the female emancipation project. Mm. 
mm. like the women's case. Mm. Uh, and that's the irony here, because Nora has become this feministic idol. Mm. Um, she's considered to be a strong, independent woman that sort of breaks free from society and the suppressing husband and goes out in the world on her own to find her own answers. And you told me what feminism is in Chinese. Yes. Uh, in Chinese, feminist, the word is Noraism. Noraism. Yes. So, so that says something about how important this right, character right. has been. So I'm She's sort of like a goddess, like she's worshipped yeah. all over the world. Yeah, and that's why I'm constantly <laughs> ashamed of myself when I read this book, because I, I meet myself all the other these normal things to, to think about the Nora all the time. Right? Yes. But w on the face of it, what is happening in a doll's house, the actual narrative here? Yes, so just uh, very briefly, mm. uh, we have five main characters. Mm. And I just want to emphasize the word main because they are all equally important in the mm. play. It's not as we would like to believe there is a one main character, which is Nora. No, there are five of them. Uh, so you have um, the married couple, Nora and Torvald Helmer, mm. and the play takes place in their apartment. The mm. whole play is in one place. And they have been married for eight years and have three small children. Uh, the play starts at Christmas Eve, and that's a very significant detail. Uh, and Nora, she's described as a very beautiful, charming wife, but she also has this side that she loves to shopping and uh, material things, and she's very, very fond of money. Uh, we get to know that a few years ago, this couple spent a whole year in Italy. And apparently this is because the husband was suffering from a terminal disease. So they had to go south so his life could be saved. And we also get to know that um, people believe that the money for this trip came from Nora's father, an inheritance. He died just at the same time. But then we also quite early in the play get to know that no, it was actually Nora who um, took up a loan to pay for this trip, to then apparently save her husband's life. Without his knowing. Without his knowing, and that was a uh, criminal offence at the time. Women were not allowed to, uh, to loan money. Uh, they had to get uh, the husband's signature. But she goes behind her husband's back then. Mm. Uh, what she actually does is to forge her father's signature to guarantee the loan. Um, so that's the married couple. He's a lawyer and she's a housewife. And then they have the other characters. We have um, Christine Linda. That's an acquaintance or a friend of Nora from the childhood. And she arrives in town this Christmas Eve for looking for a job. Mm. And she's a widow. And um, she is described as a hardworking, honest, but sort of a bit bitter uh, woman. So she is put up as a contrast to Nora, which is very indulgent and happy and loves life. Whereas you have this Christine who just wants to survive, basically. And then we have Nils Krogsta. He's the man who Nora uh, loaned the money from. Right. He's also a lawyer and he's uh, an employer, uh, employee in the commercial bank 
which Torvald now is the manager of. Mm. And in the youth, Christine Linde and um, Nils Krogstad had a relationship, but she had to choose another man because she had to support her mother and three brothers. And then, at last but not least, we have the doctor. Uh, that's a friend of the family. Uh, he comes to the apartments every single day. He's a, he's a friend from earlier days of Torval, but he's also a very good friend of the wife. So this is the five characters. Mm. The, the couple, the married couple, and uh, their friend, the doctor, and the creditor, Krugsta, and the friend of the wife, Christina mm. Linda. And this whole thing about the loan, that's what really makes things turn here. Yes, so if you just take the basic storyline, it's all about the loan. Uh, it's about that she took up this loan for saving her husband's life, then she had to do the forgery, uh, and then she get busted. Right. Um, and then her husband do not forgive her. So because he doesn't forgive her, she leaves him because he was not the man that she thought. She leaves the oppressive bourgeois patriarchal society. Basically. So it seems. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now we don't really have anything to talk about anymore because we no, sort of it's all settled. established it, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, thank you for coming. Um, thank you. It's <laughs> nice being here. Seriously. Uh, so when they uh, staged this play, let, I want to talk a little bit about that to sort of relate back to the performance practice. Yes. Because you've been critical of so-called modernization. And there's, uh, for example, there's one thing in uh, in a doll's house which is quite central because Krogsta gets fired. Yes. And he needs to get get uh, uh, public recognition again, some some respectability. Yeah, because he's also been doing fraud. Right. So he starts starts threatening Nora. Says you will, ne if you had all the money now, I wouldn't give you back back the the, the letter with the signature, and then it really starts to be difficult here, right? And, uh, but there's a scene where, well, Krogstar and Linda get back together again, and so he's sort of saved. He's not that mean character anymore. And then he drops the letter of, uh, of debt in the mailbox, right? And uh, you mentioned something uh, about if you try to modernize that specific scene, yeah, so there are many ways to that Ibsen plays get modernized. Uh, one way is that you just use the title, or like you stage Ghost and then you put up a dance performance. Right. So that's just in the that end of it. But then you have more modest uh, ways of doing it, and that is, for instance, to to do a, a lot of cutting. For instance, in Adol's house, you can cut out a doctor hmm. because he doesn't seem to have anything to do with the narrative about the loan and the thing about going between the, um, the wife and the husband. So you right. can just leave the doctor aside. We will come back to hmm. what happens then. Uh, and then you have also a lot of changes in the scenography, obviously. It's a tendency that directors want to place the story today. Mm. Uh, I think the idea about that is that it wants them wants to be more relatable, that we will see ourselves because we see people from our own time at the stage. Right. So that's a very normal thing to do, to just change all the scenography and the costumes and then you just cut a bit of lines here and there 
Um, that's the most normal uh, way of doing it. Um, but the thing about Ibsen is that the uh, drama, the narrative and the characters are not only described through the dialogue. Is everything that's written in an Ibsen play is important. Mm. And that's also the uh, stage directions mm. are extremely important. And if we connect that back to Ibsen's time as uh, a theatre director and a scenographer, um, he got a clear sense of how things are interconnected. Uh, it's a full package. Mm. So if you just say that, oh, I'm, I'm truthful to the text because we haven't been cutting any lines, you are still not truthful to Ibsen if you're cutting right. the stage direction. So back to the letter. Just, uh, so for instance, there was an, uh, or the many, but then one specific uh, adaptations of Adol's House uh, where there was obviously no letterbox. There was an email coming into right. the husband's computer. But then you take away the whole sort of feeling of suspense and uh, excitement in the play because you have this physical letterbox there and Nora can see the letter. It's a, like a transparent box made of some mesh or something. So she all the time has an eye on this box. And then you encounter another problem because Krogsta is coming to retrieve his letter. Mm. Uh, but how can you do that with an email? <laughs> You're going to say like, please don't read my email. <laughs> or can I see you delete it? And delete it from the deleted files. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, so, so you encounter a lot of, of new... Uh, well, it's much less threatening, right? It's I mean, much less I mean, threatening. You take away all the drama of yeah, the story. When yeah, when he returns that letter of, of death, I mean, he still has the photo of it at home and can post it on Facebook if he wants. <laughs> yes, and it, it's the same thing with a, a, a Hedda Gabler, hmm. even though we shouldn't no, no, talk that much fine about Hedda Gabler, but uh, there was a performance of, um, of Hedda Gabler and it was also placed today. And uh, here we have Hedda, she's burning some manuscripts uh, in rage. Like she's the burning one manuscript. The one manuscript that this guy has been working on for ages. Mm. This is a theory that he has and he's going to make him world famous, so to speak. And she's jealous and she burns the manuscripts. And the thing about burning is that when it's burned, it's gone. <laughs> uh, but in this adaptation, she was, of course, having a computer uh, and trying to destroy the computer with a hammer. So she was like in rage, trying to, to get rid of this manuscript. And um, I was sitting there in the audience and I couldn't stop thinking like, oh, but you know, this file is probably on a cloud somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe he's probably sent it to himself on an, an email. And when I left the theater, it was like, you know, when you are leaving an exam and people are like talking to one another, it's like, did you understand this question? What did you think? Did you? And people was like talking like this, I was like, probably is on a cloud. No, he probably sent it to himself on an email. No, it's probably on an external hard drive. And so people were sitting there, right. the rest so of the performance. You just empty the whole drama, uh, or the intensity of the drama. Yeah, and also this like thing that it's gone. Mm. And we all know it. Yeah, Because I think the idea is that that is old fashioned, that you would have one manuscript. But I'm thinking, 
you easily understand when the when the power goes that that's what you're left with physical objects so that's more much more well eternal yes it's not 1879 or 18 whatever but still this is just a minor problem mm. with modernizing ibsen yeah. this is just some new connotations that uh, you get but the major problem is actually to change the text itself right, right. but it, you also mentioned i think we can uh, at least bring one more example of of how you could overrun the the, the drama of it because you were talking about this this um, in your face stagings <laughs> yes that's also quite normal to you know i think the wonderful thing about going to the theater is that you uh, this feeling is created that there are lots of rooms behind and you don't see what's going on in the cellar or upstairs so you sort of start to imagining mm. this and that's an uh, effect which theater is supposed to make and you have all this uh, modern stagings where they all the time have to show you everything for instance in ghosts we saw this performance where there were glass walls like very modern, mm. this steel and glass uh, home. And we have Mrs. Alving, she hears her son making out with the maid in the, like behind. Mm. And this sort of like reminds her about when her husband was doing the same and she has this yeah. <laughs> shivering that, oh, it's ghosts. With the mother of that. With the mother, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Daughter of that, uh, the servant. Yeah. That's right, but here you can actually, you could see what was going on right. at the back uh, room and then the whole drama was gone. Right. It was sort of what I think is actually a robbery of, um, of um, like the things that we can imagine mm -hmm. because it's so delightful actually sitting there imagining those things. And you have the same thing in a doll's house. There is this scene going on upstairs. The married couple goes right. up to this masquerade and then they come down again and we hear what has been happening upstairs. And that's that uh, we start to imagine like the scene. But it's typical that they just show it. Right. And again, it's, uh, it's very respectless, I feel, uh, for the audience. Because well, it spreads the, the, the concentration. It spreads the concentration. Yeah. It also takes away this... Um, um, your own imagination, right? Yeah, right. Right. and it's because you you have that, and you have also this the the which is like you know you have what you in theater called the undertext. Yes, which somehow just gets thrown right in your face. In your face, we're going to show it. you what Ibsen wrote here, and so they just make it completely flat. Yeah, it's. Um, yeah, and I was thinking also the, the same thing is ha happens when they uh, introduce video screens and these things also, right? Same type of, type of where you, you get concerned with the technology and, and I mean, I saw this Romeo and Juliet play and they had this face was, was very deep, so we should understand that Romeo and Juliet is very deep. And <laughs> that be became just co completely monomanic, right? No, no mystery and no humor, by the way. That was what they did in this uh, Doll's House adaptation yeah. too, that it was blowing the inbox mm. up uh, on the back wall. Mm. So you could see the, uh, the letter, mm. the email lying in his inbox. Oh my God. 
Um, they think people are stupid. It's yeah, it's. Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay, but um, uh, yeah, there, there's a there's especially one thing too that I remember reacting to, mm. and uh, it has to do with the threat that that Nora no, that that Krogsta poses to Nora. And I remember the hearing on, on radio theater, one staging where they, there's a scene where she's playing with her children. Mm. And Krogstad comes in and stands there a little bit before he says, <coughs> yeah, I'm, I'm here. And she, she really uh, is shocked by it, right? And they've just taken out the children. Yeah, so that's a symptomatic that yeah. they do that. Yeah. And also they take away the maid, for instance. Right. And she also has an important uh, role to play there. Right, right. So when they so-called modernize these things, uh, this place, using the computer, using the things that you mentioned, um, that's where I wanted to get to this uh, uh, picture here, because, <coughs> correct me if I'm wrong, but as far as I have understood, Ibsen used figures like that when he was working with this place to sort of visually visualize how the figures relate to each other. Uh, well, that's not completely right. He used to, he had these figures on his desk all the time and he called them the Devil's Orchestra. And yeah. he used them for inspiration because he said it has to be trolls in everything I write. Right, okay. But uh, that being said, Ibsen had a very uh, close relationship to his characters. Like sometimes he imagined he was meeting them on the street and he could say things to his wife like, oh, today I met Nora. Right. And the wife, she was so used to this, so she would just reply, okay, how was she dressed today? And then he would tell her how she was dressed. And he often referred to his characters as friends or people that he know, like, uh, I cannot, uh, I, don't, I do not agree with this crazy Dr. Stockman. Uh, right. Don't blame me for what everything he says. <laughs> I have nothing to do with that. <laughs> Yeah. So, yeah. Because yeah. the, the, the point I wanted to, to uh, get at, and figures, figures and all, <coughs> he had a very clear idea of, of uh, not necessarily literally where they should stand saying this or that, but a clear idea of, of the structure and what is important in the, in, uh, in the place. And um, it just struck me as sort of a divine irony that when they so-called modernize Ibsen's plays, they are going back to practices that he left. Exactly. For example, when you have that, <coughs> the party at, at Stenbogs in, in, in Adol's house, showing it in your face. That is what, <laughs> this is my pet thing. That is what you in kitsch criticism call uh, uh, pre-digestion. Yes that you just digest it before and then you serve it to the audience so they don't have to, to exert any kind of energy to understand what's going on. And also with the stereotypical characters, they sort of, you know, when they should be modern, they're like perhaps standing like this or doing some strange things as they, uh, the actors would do. And Ibsen saw that as insufficient, old fashioned. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's what you, you might see uh, today if you go to the theater, you might see, I've uh, actually uh, seen it two characters just standing yeah. straight, talking to the audience, the yeah. whole play. And we're just like, oh, this is so revolutionary and so uh, fantastic, so creative. But uh, I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. But it's like when they're doing that, they're, 
they're sort of being figures in an Ibsen play. Yes. Thinking that they're heroes, but <laughs> they're just going back to something that Ibsen saw as insufficient, right? Okay, I want to get to, to uh, uh, Nora. Yes. Herself. Uh, but there's perhaps something we should say also about uh, Thorvald because he's, um, it's easy to see him as sort of the bad guy. So we don't need to talk so much about him, but there's still some interesting stuff to be said before we get into Nora proper. Well, as we already talked about that, he's, he's kind of a ridiculous guy. Just this fun thing that Ibsen makes fun of him. For instance, that he's made the leader of the commercial bank, right. like an institution that's lending out money to people. But how on earth is this going to work out when the man is constantly afraid of death? <laughs> and he's <laughs> he thinks that death is like some ugly things that uh, yeah, you should avoid at any cost. How, how can... <laughs> How well, can I mean, it's possibly death brings something unfree into unfree, the house. Unfree, yeah, and it's like yeah. some poison. It's poisoning the whole family life. Yeah. So uh, how can he stand his job? He's <laughs> <laughs> probably going to quit after a week. <laughs> well, it should. <laughs> okay. Um, so when we get to uh, uh, the figure of Nora, mm. uh, there are certain things that that Ibsen does that really make us like her. Yes. So let's start to break this down. Nora debunked starts. <laughs> Nora exposed. <laughs> Showdown. Uh, yeah, well, there are, there are reasons why this uh, lady has become a feministic uh, idol. Mm. And that's, of course, she's portrayed as uh, a woman that's completely under her husband's will. Like, he's the one in charge of their money. And uh, he is also calling her a lot of uh, sort of condensating names, like mm. songbird and spending bird, and mm. uh, calling her a child on several occasions. Squirrel. Squirrel, you name it. And um, her husband is, is really treating her as a child, like... Yeah. <laughs> doing things like this on her. Right. Uh, another thing is that, of course, she's not allowed to take up uh, this loan by herself. And uh, then she says, so isn't a woman allowed to to save her husband's life and to to do these things out of compassion? And then the Krogsa says, but the law doesn't ask for motives. Right. And then she said, oh, then it's a silly law. Uh, so she's a, she's a victim. Um, another thing is, of course, that a husband doesn't forgive her. And he has sort of prom promised her that he will do whatever for her. Mm. But he doesn't. Uh, yeah, and I, th I think that's one thing, speaking of simultaneous contrast, Ibsen is really clever at, speaking of what Blake Snyder talks about in Save the Cat, make the bad guy badder. Because that's one thing. Everybody sees that, that Helmer, Torvald Helmer, is a moron. He's a complete idiot, and that's <laughs> everybody agrees on that. But with Nora, it's a different case. So, so yeah, that the, the fact that she sacrificed herself for her for her husband, she took up that loan, worked all those hours to pay it back without him getting to know it, because her his masculine uh, self image couldn't stand that. So you see that she's being 
suppressed and then she, therefore she has to lie even though you know lying is not a good thing that becomes uh, you know it shows how she's oppressed right yeah the, the main thing is that she saved her husband's life with that loan yeah. and that he doesn't forgive her hmm. and of course the very end the famous end that she stands up for herself and her own rights right. uh, women as well should be allowed to figure out what they like and what they think and she wants to go out in the world and figure this out for herself so it's a self-realization project right. this is from where she uh, got this uh, independent strong she heroine. grows it's her great she, she grows she has a yeah. catharsis and yeah and he's just left as the normal he's stupid uh, guy he is right? yes but there's some other aspects to Nora too. She's an outright liar, isn't she? She is, and I don't think anyone would disagree. Uh, it's quite obvious that Ibsen portray her as a uh, liar, and as a cheater, mm. and as a very, um, as a temptress. Mm. Um, but the lying is really the most obvious things. All mm. the way in the first scene, she's, she's, she lies like, on a regular basis again yeah. and again. Like the thing about, about the macrons? About the macrons, uh, he asked her, the husband, he, he doesn't want to, his wife to eat sweets. He is, uh, is um, uh, what's the word? Paranoid. Mm. Uh, so he's very afraid of health problems. So he is afraid that his wife can get bad teeth. So he um, forbids her to eating anything with sugar. And then he asks her if she's been eating macarons. And we have just seen her eating macarons. Yeah. And he asks her three times and she denies it three times. And then she lies about... Like Peter. Like Peter. Denying Jesus. Three times. Yeah, yeah sorry. And then she just continues to lie about all, but all sort of innocent thing. Like we can forgive her and people have uh, forgiven her. Um, yeah. throughout the centuries because, I th it's, it's because we believe that she goes through a change in the end yeah and in a way his uh, oppressive uh, patriarchy forces her to lie she has no other choice she has lie. no other choice uh, but as we can see all the lies that she comes with has not only to do with the loan hmm. um, but she lies just about anything yeah I think that that's, I mean, like you said, people understand she's, she's lying, but excuse her for it because of the oppressive blah, blah, yes. victimhood. But then one thing that I understood reading this, and this mm. is the really serious stuff. It is. The whole scam about Thorvald being sick, which is completely ridiculous. I mean, you sent me a lecture by, by um, Jon Nigo, mm. uh, a professor you studied with. Yes. Yeah. And he talks about this thing of, of uh, and of course, they talk about it at length here, uh, uh, how there's no disease that is deadly and then you suddenly you're cured going to Italy. <laughs> no, it's the whole, um, the whole premises for Nora being a heroine is really that she saved her husband's life, her husband's life. Right. But if we take away that, it just falls. It just falls. So what she's, we only have her version of this trip. 
And what she tells her friend is that her husband was uh, terminally ill uh, out of uh, overexhaustion. He had been working too hard. For a whole year he had been working too hard. And then, she says, the doctors came to me behind my husband's back and recommended me to go to Italy. Right. And then he would survive. Uh, so one can ask, what sort of disease is it that you can get completely well from, from going one year to Italy? It doesn't exist such a disease. There's been theories that he had tuberculosis, but in fact there is a lot of side effects like long-term effects of tuberculosis. And she says very um, concrete that he has no, he is now as healthy as ever mm. uh, and strong as ever. Well, so it all, we have to believe Nora that it was because out of overexhaustion. And this is a young man, newly wedded, who is getting terminally ill out of overexhaustion. <laughs> um, one can ask, and why is that? If it's true, so why is that? And the reason is simple. It's because Nora is a spending bird. Oh, and he says all the time to her that it's very expensive to have a spending bird. <laughs> And he has to work very yeah. hard. He has to get a promotion. He has to get a new job yeah. because she loves to spend money. But also the thing that she said, the doctors came to me and we could wonder why. Was it a whole team of doctors coming to Nora, recommending her not to tell her husband that was terminally ill? It just really doesn't make sense. Also taking into account uh, the place of the, the women in society at the time, I don't think the doctors would come to the wife mm. exclusively. So it seems it's very clear that Nora, she really wanted to go to Italy for fun. She loves pleasure, she loves luxury, she loves the South, and she had to find some way to make them go to Italy. Uh, she wanted to go just like all the other young wives. <laughs> Um, and then she actually takes up her loan herself yeah. to go to Italy and later she makes her husband pay uh, the deductions and interests right. for this luxury trip. That's the most amazing thing because she has been working so hard and trying to hide it from Torvald and it turns out that basically he's been... <laughs> he's been paying for it. <laughs> the whole time. And she cashes in on having saved him. Yes, um. so there is no, there is no uh, reason to believe yeah. that he was, he was actually dying. And, and if you take into account that he's very parano paranoid, mm. uh, so probably if she wanted to go to Italy the, the, uh, and save his life, the easiest thing would be to just tell him mm. that you, uh, you're going to be saved if you go to Italy. Right. But she chooses not to tell him, and that's probably because he isn't right. mortally ill. But then there's also, um, I want to do some, some uh, questions from the audience soon, but uh, I think we'll finish off Nora first. Uh, this whole idea, uh, I mean, she's not only a liar, but she's also outright cynical. She is so and cynical. There's one thing that really struck me, and that's the whole death of, of uh, Dr. Rank, uh, or that he say he's, he's going to die. And there's, that's, there's that famous scene where she says, uh, uh, he talks about that that uh, it's going towards the end or something like that. And she's like, 
what? Because this is when Krogstar is, is, is pressuring her, right? Yeah. And he says, yes, I, I, I'm done for. Oh, oh, it's you. <laughs> and she's really, really just uh, relieved that, oh, it's only him dying. <laughs> it doesn't yes. really matter. <laughs> so, I mean, that, that's, uh, that's also one, one illustration of the, of the fact that she's completely cynical when it comes to using other people or, or lying to other people in, in uh, you know, taking responsibility for what she's done. Yeah, like she also, when uh, she says to her husband, oh, we can just take up a loan mm. to have a bit more money during the Christmas. And he says, yeah, well, what if I were to die on New Year's Eve? Yeah. Uh, and then and you would just be sitting there with the loan and think yeah. about the people yeah. that you owe money. And she just said, yeah, but those are just strangers. Yeah, it's um, just like... <laughs> and <laughs> also the, <laughs> the way uh, she treats her friend or friend, uh, Christina Linda, is that she actually just uses her as a maid. Right. Uh, uh, asking her to do her favors all the time. And, uh, and the scene is also so heartbreaking when Christina Lind comes and she's a widow. And uh, Nora says, today I'm just going to listen to your worries. Uh, and then she says, but I just have to say one thing. <laughs> and then she just starts about the whole good fortune they had, that she, the husband is get the director of the commercial bank. And she just goes on and on about her own <laughs> stuff. Oh, but it's so cynical of me. I forgot to talk about you. We forgot <laughs> to talk about you. And, and Christina gets to say a little bit. And she's like, oh, but I have to, <laughs> I have to tell you more about our happiness. And uh, just add there, very important. So, um, like she's been treated like um, it's said that her husband treats her like a child but in fact Christina Linda also tells her Nora you are a child yeah so it's not only the men in the play who right. tells her that she is a child it's and, also a woman and that's why this I mean, we'll get more of some select lines uh, but I noticed one thing suddenly the the, the um, uh, what we uh, the woman who takes care of the children. The maid or yeah, the yeah, nurse? Yeah, the the old, uh, older woman. Helen. Who took care of Nora when she was a child. Uh, and she talks about uh, when Nora's freaking out and trying to find Christina Hillinda so that she can get some help. She's been out before and she wants to go out again. Mm. And, uh, and uh, the maid says then, uh, I don't know how it's translated, but something like, out yet again, Nora will be sick, will be cold. Like, like you talk to a child, right? Yes. <laughs> so it's like, and that, so, that is seemingly uh, unimportant. Yes. But it is one signifier that shows us what this person is all about, right? She is completely childish all the time. Hmm. Like, for instance, the scene where she's uh, swearing. Oh, yeah. Do that one. Uh, so she is, she's got, just gotten the news that her husband is now the boss of uh, Nils Krogstad. And she finds this extremely amusing that mm. she and her husband has power over other people, and especially Positions her creditor. Positions have changed. Positions have changed. And she's like clapping and finding this uh, so uh, amusing. And then she says, oh, I so want to say something, but I cannot say it in front of Torval. And the mm. doctor says, oh, come on, uh, tell us. And then she says, 
Well, in the English translations here, here she says a bloody hell. I just have to say bloody hell. Right. Um, but in fact, she says dödopina, which is in English. Death and torment. Death and torment. And that is when Sebastian Salvo comes into play here. Yes. Or Christ himself. And uh, we'll let that be. We'll a let that be. That's a cliffhanger. Because I... <clears throat> Let's see here now if we've gotten some uh, questions from the audience, because I know I have at least one. We'll start with that. Um, this is actually on Perigin, so I'll have wow. to ask you to be short on this one. I would. This is one of our patrons. I would very much like Adara to explain uh, Perigin, the person that Per meets on the narrow bridge. It's an infamously difficult person to uh, or character to to uh, uh, explain. So I'm wondering here. <laughs> well, that's uh, quite a, a big topic. Hmm. Um, sh should we do it? <laughs> and I don't I don't know if I can explain it. Um, right. But an extra half an hour on that one. An extra half now okay. on that one. I, but the thing is that in all of Ibsen's plays, they meet Bergen, actually. <laughs> in Pegunt, he actually just literally meets him. Uh, but all the characters throughout all of Ibsen's plays meet this force which they cannot overcome. And so do Nora. And she also, as Pegunt, fails and, in uh, this. And that would be Krogstaden, or is it...? Uh... Like, she, she's not able to meet uh, the big challenge that's in front yeah, of her as right. Pegunt. So it's, it's the same theme, but uh, to go into Boygen as a uh, mythological, national, romantic that's creature, a, that's, that's a, a big thing. That's okay. a big thing. <coughs> um, so um, our producer sent this question um, uh, from someone. Uh, based on his character, how do you think Ibsen would react to the, to the modernized stage performances of his plays? And how do you think his criticism would be received? Um, well, to answer that first question um, with uh, how Ibsen himself reacted to a play he saw himself. Mm -hmm. He was uh, watching this performance of Rosmersholm in Germany and uh, where the director had decided that the uh, main male character should wear a yellow suit. Mm. And then Ibsen said, well, he was about to leave the performance, but he stayed. And then he said, well, I just have to live with that nobody understands my intentions. Mm -hmm. And if you just, if he reacted this strong to a yellow suit, yeah. you can just imagine how he would react to what they are doing today. Right. But do you, how do you think they would react if he said Well, something? the thing about respecting the, the playwright is very old-fashioned. Mm. It's something that you really shouldn't do. <laughs> <laughs> right, that's yeah. why you left uh, studying theatre. That's why I left studying theatre. Yeah. So, um, mm. that, uh, and it's, um, what was the question again? How it, how it would be received at any criticism? Uh, any criticism for Ibsen today? I don't think people would have cared that much. Mm. No, because it's uh, the paradigm that we live in is that uh, 
you can use the play for whatever you want and the most important is the uh, opinions of the director right. which we are very interested in knowing and we can read a whole program of what the, the director's vision of this mm. but and it, there's nearly anything about uh, the playwright's uh, mm. opinions okay so um, getting back to a doll's house proper then and the reason for having the crucifixion here um, uh, I think one of the th the real the thing I really learned from from uh, this book, which will be published in English at some point, mm -hmm. we hope, uh, is that uh, he uses clear mythological Christian mythological references, and I think just ma mentioning one thing on Nora, one thing that that ha and also with with Torvald. But I mean, people know that he's, he's an idiot, so that's why we're talking so much about Nora, right? Um, is that uh, Christina, who comes into the play, she is the one who takes who takes responsibility, who works, who knows how to to knit, and Thorvald just hates that, and uh, and uh, Nora doesn't know how to sew. I mean, like with practicalities, things that have to do with existence to survive, mm. they are they don't know anything about it. And she sort of embodies that, Christina Linda, that figure. Yes. And uh, it's so interesting that when she uh, uh, comes the first time, Nora says, oh, is someone coming? Oh, that, that's uh, literal translation would be, that's boring. Yes. And then when she exits, Torvald says, oh, finally got rid of her. She's, she's incredibly boring, that human being, because she actually takes responsibility for her actions. Yes. And I think... That's one thing I really learned. If it's something that that, that the Doll's House really is about, and it, then it is uh, how Nora doesn't want to pay her debt in a metaphorical sense as well. But of course, the faith of Jesus is a person who really does that, you know, is crucified and resurrected, but she doesn't want to go through that because it's it's not beautiful. <laughs> No, um, both Nora and Torvald has this aversion towards um, reality, like towards sickness, decay, uh, to not having it uh, joyful and uh, mm. awfully fun all the time. They are, um, and they every time something about death or aging or taking responsibility is brought up she just like shh, shh. yeah boring boring or she wasn't she doesn't want to know anything about this and yeah. boring society and boring religion and boring business she was boring laws boring laws she just wants to be joyful all the time yeah. um and then uh, as you said we have the complete opposite in this other woman which is uh, self-sacrificing hard-working honest and uh, just is uh, content with mm. the necessary. Mm. So if you are really looking for some modern uh, couple in this play, you have to look somewhere else than to Nora and Torvald Helmer. You have another couple here, Kristina uh, Linda and Nils Krogstad, and they are actually the, um, the modern couple here. She suggests, in fact, that she can work uh, to provide for their family because she comes up with this idea that we are two shipwrecked people so we could just come together um, and I can take care of your children and we can be husband and, and wife. And they accept the shipwreck. Exactly. 
accept they the don't, shipwreck. They don't push it away, they accept the, the shipwreck. They are actually taking the next step, uh, taking responsibilities. And then she suggests that, oh, let me work, because she's now gotten the position in the commercial bank, right. and you can be home with the children. And if it isn't that something for the... Uh, that should be a feminist idea. That should, <laughs> she should be the feministic icon, not right. Nora. And Ibsen tricks us into believing that Nora is like the, the most important character here, or some kind of hero, right? Yeah, but that's um, nearly yeah. almost uh, but all the time the case in Ibsen's place. You can think that he put the husband and the wife up against each other, but they are actually just mirroring each other. They are the same kind. Just amazing. He does this all the time. There is this couple of couples, like two couples. Um, and in this case, we have Christina Linde and Krogstar, which is the, really the ones who take responsibility and take action and are willing to go to the next step yeah. in life. Whilst Nora and Helmer, they just want to stay in their own little fairy tale, in their own little doll's house. Sure. So that's the, just like the... Um, immediate sort of uh, um, interpretation but this has a way deeper um, interpretation um, it's um, in Ibsen's earlier plays he they are based on mythological and religious and historical um, topics but then it's believed when he goes over to contemporary dramas that he leaves all this behind. And that's not a term that he came with, no. contemporary drama. No. So that's been branded by someone that's else. That's been branded by someone, yes. Because that, as I said in the beginning, I think that really fools people. It's fooled me completely. I, yeah. But the, the very fact is that all his contemporary dramas are uh, just as based on mythological yeah. motifs and themes as the previous ones. Yeah. So I think, okay, so, so that would be a good point then to start talking about sort of these visual signifiers and uh, we'll get and, and, and the different lines, you know, how, how you, you cannot just remove what Ibsen has written when it comes to sonography, which is actually not that much. Uh, but if you start tampering with that, how you can lose that mythological reference and that that uh, the whole basis uh, of it. You want to do some uh, show some some visual signifiers that that show. I mean, because that's what he does. He uses these signifiers to show their character or or uh, exemplify, visualize the action that is going on. Yeah, so that's extremely important to remember all the time that uh, Ibsen he doesn't portray and describe his character just through the dialogue. Hmm. Everything that's in the play. Um, describes the characters. Just sort of thinking as a painter as well. He is very much thinking as a painter, yes. Mm. And he's like a whole characteristic of one character can be can be obvious uh, can be um, shown through something in the scenography or some or through uh, props. Mm. Uh, and it's very easy, very tempting to just modernize these things. Yeah, because it's just old-fashioned. I things. have to just say that it, we have to remember that Ibsen, at this time when he wrote A Doll's House, he in a playwright for 30 years. He was quite experienced, and at this time, he it was possible for him to just do, to just write. He didn't have to do any other work. 
So he spent two full years on each play. And with his experience and two whole years, you have to uh, have that in mind that nothing in this place are there which are not consciously put there. Yeah, I think the, the Swedish playwright uh, Strindberg referred to them as, as Swiss watches. Yes, they are really yeah. Swiss. If you remove, remove one little feather, <laughs> it just doesn't work. It just doesn't show the right time. Okay, so what, what spe how specifically does he show, for example, Nora's character or Runk's character or any character of your choice uh, through visual signifiers? Uh, well, so we just have to, to go a little bit back to just mm. establish the, the idea that Ibsen bases also his contemporary place on religious motifs. Right, okay. Um, so when Ibsen was asked what he was reading, because people were all the time awfully interested in, in what he was reading, he would say, I'm just reading the Bible and the newspapers. Uh, especially later in life. Uh, earlier he read a lot of, um, of historical and mythological material uh, for research for his plays like Pergunt and Brand and all this. But later mm. he said he only read the Bible and the newspapers. And people have a hard, have n like that Ibsen is a Christian is uh, sort of like uh, a theory that nobody believes in. Uh, they believe that he was uh, radical atheists. Um, but whether or not Ibsen was religious or not, uh, it's very clearly that he's very much inspired by the Bible and uses biblical motifs all the way throughout his place and also in Adol's house. Mm -hmm. So and, uh, something that's very clear is that uh, the play is placed on Christmas Eve. And the very, it starts with Nora coming back home from doing her Christmas shopping and she brings a Christmas tree into the house. And this is such a, a, um, a prop mm. that can easily just be changed out with something else, but it uh, has a huge um, impact on how, how Nora is described. So we have to remember that today it doesn't seem any like it's no it's obvious that she brings a Christmas tree but at that time the Christmas tree was still regarded as a pagan pagan uh, symbol. So she brings this pagan symbol into the house and she puts it in the middle of the room and then when Torvald asks her what she wants for Christmas she says oh Torvald can't you just give me money and he replies, no, that wouldn't be any fun, right, to just give her money. But she said, oh, you can just wrap it in golden paper and, and hang it on the Christmas tree. <laughs> uh, and that's, um, <laughs> what does that remind us of? <laughs> well, it's a dance around the golden calf. It is. Yeah. Hmm. Um, and and then, then we have, of course, the, um, the um, visitation cards from Dr. Rank. Right. And again, who is Dr. Rank? Um, it's sort of a interesting detail that Ibsen leaves out his uh, first name. All the other characters are given a first name, even Krogstad. 
But Dr. Rank, he's just Dr. Rank. And even if Noah says that he's my best friend, she never calls him by the first name. Right. And who's the one who cannot be called by the first name? That's the devil himself. That's the devil himself. And he plays this uh, part as the tempting. Yeah, because he is all, 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 I mean, everything he talks about is, you know, not denying yourself pleasures. Yes. And, like, and, and swear, eat macarons. He encourages her to swear also, right? I wanted to say. But he yeah. brings in this uh, visitation card. He tells Nora he's suffering from syphilis and he tells her when my death is coming up, I'm going to give you this visitation cards with a cross upon. Hmm. And he puts this in the mailbox. And that's also like a detail, yeah. like a... Um, it seemingly doesn't uh, indicate that much, right? No. And another funny thing uh, is about the thing about the doors. On the, on, the, uh, on the cards there, because I didn't think about it before I read that book, uh, that actually he gives them two cards. He gives them two cards. So they're both doomed. And that's the thing, that it, what Ibsen does is that he... Rank is talking about them all the time. Yes. When he's saying that he's going to die, when he's going to rot, he's talking about them. Yes. So he could, it would be sufficient to give one cut, but right. he give both the husband and the wife yeah. the cross. So now the yeah. last yeah. moment has And come. I think if you give him like, if you think syphilis is something they had in the 19th century and you modernize the, the disease, then you lose out of the whole, like they uh, argue quite convincingly in, in this book, how uh, his bone, his, his uh, backbone is crumbling. And they're arguing how he asked the tempter, then you have the snake who had legs, who could walk, but then was forced down on his belly and would slither away, right? And that is what's happening with drunk, that he's, he's crouching down and he's going to slither away like the snake he is. Right? Yes. It's also, <laughs> it's also a curious detail that he talks about his spine uh, as a person. Mm. Um, it's like he has his own character. Mm. Mm. Uh, but the thing, uh, other um, visual aspects, like when it comes to xenography, is the doors. So Ibsen, uh, in all his plays, is describing a lot of doors. And um, uh, in this specific uh, apartment, we have uh, several doors to all the different, um, uh, in all directions. Mm. And then we have this scene when Christina Linda, and again, she's coming on Christmas Eve. She's been traveling a lot far. She's searching for a job. She's uh, clearly quite poor. And uh, she says, oh, well, I have to go and find a room. And then Nora says, yeah, unfortunately, we don't have space. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I She's obviously lives right. in this huge apartment. And then later, when Nora leaves her husband, she says, uh, well, I'm going to sleep with uh, Christina Linde's room tonight. Yeah. And Christina Linde, we get to know, is renting some crappy uh, room somewhere who doesn't even have an entrance, no entrance. Right. So, yeah. Uh. And if you don't stage it uh, in a modernistic way, where you just have one space without all these doors, this point sort of loses its significance. Right. I think um, I think uh, towards the end we'll we'll talk a little bit about how he uses lines and that they are not uh, unimportant, right? 
uh, because um, the thing that really caught my attention was exactly this thing about death uh, and torment. How uh, you have the Christmas tree that has been ripped. Yeah. And that's the fate every person has to go through living in this life. And that is what Thorvald and Nora doesn't want to experience. Mm. And you see how that doesn't <laughs> work <laughs> very well for them, right? And uh, it just struck me how Ibsen then uses these clear characters when you have Rank as the devil, as the tempter. And Nora is also the tempter. And Thorvald is just, uh, and he also wants to live in this sort of paradise uh, situation where there's no, nothing's, nothing's wrong, everything's yeah. beautiful, right? And then you have Christina coming in as basically the savior, as Christ himself, taking upon him the suffering uh, of others. And when I read that, that was just uh, an amazing, amazing thing. But okay, we'll get you going away from the lines here. Um, um, so there are certain things also like, like oh yeah, the, the, the masquerade suits. The masquerade suit, oh yes. And um, that screaming is like, I am, I am doing masquerade. Yes, there are several things about this. Um, one thing is uh, what she's dressing up as. She's mm. dressing up in this costume uh, which the couple bought in Capri. Mm. Well, they were staying one year in Capri. And this is a traditional costume worn by the fishing girls there, which is sort of like a, um, well, the girls who were making the man happy at Capri. Uh, and this dance is called the Tarantella. Right. And often this, they modernize this dance to make it more something which is provocative today, like uh, stagings in the 1960s with using rock and roll. And today you would use like hip hop or whatever she's doing. Pole dancing or? <laughs> something. Uh, and that seems to be such an insignificant thing to change because you could read it that Ibsen just want to do something shocking because indeed this was shocking for the the men and women at the time. But then you have to go into like what kind of costume it is. Is this a tarantella? And what's a tarantella? Well, that's a poisonous spider. Right. And uh, then uh, Tova says to her, it seems like you still have the tarantella in your blood and you're dancing like your life depends on it. So it's a symbol that the spider is actually caught in, the, in its own, her own, own web. Own web. Right. Uh, but then there's the masquerade, yes. Uh, so they're going upstairs to the Steinbergs uh, for a masquerade party. Hmm. So after the masquerade, Dr. Rank comes and knocks on the door and uh, they are asking, who is it? And he says, it's I. In the English translation, it's translated into, it's me. Mm -hmm. But it still has the significance that he says, it's I, because who says, it's I? Well, it's all those, Jesus said that many will come after me and say, mm -hmm. it's I but they are not me. They will be false prophets. They will be false prophets. <laughs> but the point is that Dr. Rank is saying that the next costume ball, I will be invisible. Right. 
and I will be uh, wear this uh, invisible hat, invisible cap. And this invisible hat is clearly a symbol of the, the wizard or something demonic. So it's a clear point to that he's the devil. Yeah. And this is so clear because this, all these uh, lines here, this whole little passage with Dr. Rang saying that he wants to be the uh, invisible, the next masquerade, they're not really necessary at all for the story. No, it doesn't add anything for the, actual for the action, narrative. It yeah, doesn't have anything yeah, to do with it. Yeah. And this is, uh, so it's easy to think, yeah, this is just filling. Just mm. cut it out. Yeah. I've even seen performances where Rank is just completely out of the play. Um, but another thing he says, he says that I'm going to be invisible. And then Nora asks what she can be. And then he says, oh, you can just walk in your ordinary clothes yeah. as you walk through the world. And this is um, just a point to what happened to in the very last scene when Nora says she's going to leave her husband and he says, where are you going? And she says, I'm going to take off the costume. Yeah. And then she comes out in her ordinary clothes. And then she's new. put on her costume. <laughs> then she's put on her costume and a new masquerade has started and Dr. Rank is invisible <laughs> attending. That was freaky because I suddenly I saw like Rank would be sitting here and just tearing off his skin <laughs> and then you have the devil, actual devil, the devil sitting there. And they, they have the actual literal, so to speak, literal figuratively speaking, the devil in their home saying, do not try to, to uh, uh, take responsibility for your actions like Jesus did, like Christina does. Yeah. And he's so concerned all the time, Dr. Rank, that Christine will take over the sort of the part he's played in yeah. the house. Yeah. Uh, she would be my successor and he, he doesn't like that thought. Yeah, but then he's very happy when he sees that, it, uh, that Christine has no effect on that. No. <laughs> and um, yeah, and also it's in this um, scene when the, the stalking scene, uh, it's actually said, Ibsen comes with the um, stage direction that uh, it's getting darker throughout the scene. Right. And darkness and also fires are then symbols for the devil. And in the end, he comes visiting them after the masquerade ball and he says, I'm only coming for smoking and Hav Havana. And then Nora gives uh, him uh, Fire lifts up his yeah. cigar and then when he goes he says thank you for the fire. Thank you for the light. <laughs> and she's giving fuel to the fire of eternally burning hell. Yes. Isn't Krogstar basically the only character that develops? I mean, yes, he is. Given what we know about uh, Nora and Thorvald, neither of them develop, right? No. And uh, Rank, of course, well, the devil doesn't de develop in any way. And Christina, to the, the extent that she represents Christ, Christina, as the boring responsibility. Then you have Krogstad, who goes from being a guy who's kind. I mean, it's not like he wouldn't break uh, Nora's legs or whatever to get his money. But, uh, but he's like the bad guy. And he is saved by Christ, by Christina. And then 
stops hating or stops being bitter. Or yes, he's really the one who has some sort of personal development yeah. here. Um, because of Christina Linde, she says, I believe in the good in you. Yeah, the foundation. In the foundation in you. Yeah, and, and she, she forgives. She forgives. Nora and Thorvald, they don't forgive. They don't forgive. No. Uh, but she forgives him, she saves yeah. him, and she's, yeah. he is accepting her right. savior, right. saving act. And that's act. the thing that Nora doesn't, she doesn't want to be saved. No. Because then she is, that's the thing, that's where you have the, the letter of debt. That she does not want to be in debt to people. She doesn't want to be in debt to Thorvald either when it comes to, really comes to, push comes to show, right? That she shall be somehow, uh, uh, oh, well, in debt. No. No, him. she cannot stand that thought. Right. And it's very so important. So that's why you need that letter, right? If, yeah, it's very important to pay attention here that Nora, she's actually planning to leave way before the scene where the husband doesn't forgive her. Yeah. It's often said that, oh, because the husband doesn't forgive her, she yeah. needs to leave. She cannot live with him. He's a stranger. Yeah. But in fact, we can see throughout the play when this uh, threat about that she, her secret's going to be revealed, she's planning to leave. Yeah, when things become serious, Becomes when the there's serious. consequences. Yes, yeah. but uh, about this letter, about the, the relationship um, between uh, the conflict between Nora and Krogstad, uh, it's an interesting little thing that happened in a German translation. Um, yeah. Because at the time Ibsen died in 1906, there were six different German translations of Adult's House, but one of them goes got most influential and was the basic of further translations into other languages. And in this translation, um, the translator, he wanted to make this more familiar to the Morales. German uh, upper class or upper middle class audience. So he made some small adjustments, tiny ones that seems very uh, harmless. Mm. For instance, he changed the fact that Nora is doing transcribing work. Mm. She's copying manuscripts. She's copying manuscripts of his work. So yeah. he changed that into that she's translating a novel for a woman's magazine. Right. And what, why does that matter? That matters because uh, Krogstad, he comes with this promissory note and says, um, you, I can see that the date is written in a different handwriting. And he says, I think I, I recognize this handwriting because he recognizes Nora's handwriting. And how on earth could this man recognize the wife's handwriting if it wasn't for that he was actually giving her this right. office work? So all the work that she did was something that he That was gave for proving uh, his own sort of uh, thesis that he probably uh, he suspected Nora, but he uh, didn't know. Uh. So he gave her transcription work uh -huh. to do to just get her handwriting so she did like and this much proof. Thorvald paid the rest and but but it, as a visual signifier you need that in the play so that you understand so that it becomes um, credible that yes. Krogstad knows her handwriting yes and gets the grip on her yes without that the grip slips yes <sighs> then he doesn't have proof so and that's this is just like a such an insignificant little detail, yeah, yeah. but all these things got lost in, in translation all the time. Right. But there's one thing we need to add with Krogstad yes. as a mythic figure. Can you just... Well, now we've been talking a lot about the biblical uh, references in the play, but there's also a lot of mythology. And um, 
Well, we have this Nils Krogstad, and Ibsen didn't really need to reveal his name, but the character reveals his name anyway. And Nils actually comes from Nicholas, right. which is Saint Nicholas, which is the same character that Santa Claus is based on in Norwegian. The name for Santa Claus is Nissa, so yeah, it comes from the same word again. Right. And so Nils Krogstad, again, he comes on Christmas Eve asking Nora if she can do him a favor mm -hmm. and asking for the, what is it actually that he's asking for? To get some answers. Oh yeah. Good. So he comes on Christmas Eve to get some answers. And that's, so what, he thanks, says, says that's what he says. I'm coming to get some answers. And we still get traces of this old tradition in Santa Claus. He's coming to asking, are there some kind children here? Right. At least in Norway, the tradition is still like that. And this goes far back to the St. Nicholas going from door to door to sort of um, checking out if people have been doing great good duties, right. duties all over the year. And that's an amazing thing. I, that's also one of those revelations from that book is like, holy mother of God, here is Santa Claus and the devil and, and the, the tarantella. <laughs> uh, yeah, and there is, is so much more. If we had a couple of more hours, we could go into the mermaid motif and the huldra. Well, when you have uh, this published in English, you'll be back. Yeah, I just have to say that a doll's house in Norwegian is uh, et dukkiem, mm -hmm. and this is not a title or a word Ibsen came up with. We can find this et dukkiem once uh, earlier in Norwegian literature, uh -huh. and that's in a play called Et Huldre Bryllup, Et Huldre Wedding. This is this woman yeah. living in the mountains, yeah. uh, like lurking men into the mountain. Right, okay. So he's taking this name of the play from oh this play, and that's sort of a clear, um, clear kind of signal that okay, pay attention to this, this play. You know what? I'll never read *A Doll's House* again. I hate that woman. <laughs> <laughs> Is there a famous last word you want to say about Ibsen before we round off this conversation? Um, Ibsen himself introduced the term um, life lie or life illusion that we all build our lives upon. Mm. And he says that if you take away the life illusions of an ordinary person, you're going to take away his happiness at the same time. Mm. So I'm wondering, are we ready to take away our illusions about Nora or not? <laughs> Adarium, this has been quite entertaining. Thank you for coming to the cave, old fellas. Thank you for having me. And thank you for watching. Remember, you can support our show at patreon.com slash I'll see you next month.